0: Just before I get into this, it just so happens that tomorrow I'm still down here. I, I work from Leicester. Um, my colleague Andrew lives in Seaton. We are both going to be at a church in Seaton tomorrow, Cross Crossroads Christian Fellowship, from nine o'clock through to early afternoon. There will be three talks, then a um, fellowship lunch, and then another talk. So. Andrew will be kicking off with creation or evolution, seeking truth in science and Christian values. It's free ent- free for you to come if you want to come. Um, then we're we'll going to look at people are amazing, features that could not evolve. Then uh, climate change and the Christians' care for creation. Some people think that Christians don't care about the environment. Well, a Christian should be someone who cares about the environment, but we need to be sure that the kind of environmentalist, uh, vi- environmentalism we have is sensible and not alarmist. Uh, so that's the Andrew, and um, then I'll be doing a talk, Stars, Their Purpose and People. So a varied selection of talks. So if you're interested in this sort of subject and you've got time tomorrow, um, or you have somebody in the area who's interested in going to such a meeting, we'd love to see you. Okay. Well, why have I called this talk, Battle for the Mind? It's This this issue of where we came from, origins, is much more than just about biology some theory about how animals might change over time. It's a battle for hearts and minds. And uh, there are two basic views of origins in our Western world today, our secular Western world. There's the view that says God is the creator, and the view that says you don't need a God. Things, by natural processes, along, as long as you have plenty of time, millions of years, can go from the simple to the complex. Of course, there's many variations on those themes. Generally, those who argue for there's no God would argue for an evolutionary view. Now, some Christians would argue for an evolutionary view. I used to myself. But I think that doesn't fit with the Bible, doesn't fit with the facts of science. We'll we'll look at that uh, tonight as well. But these are different views of origins. Okay, And as you know, it's controversial. Some people get really, really heated about this. Well, I hope we're going to look at this in a balanced way tonight, and um, you won't necessarily agree with everything I, I've got to say. So I hope you'll have some questions for me. This um, magazine is produced in this country. It's certainly not a Christian magazine by any stretch. It's, um, I would say, ti- at times, there have even been, been uh, non-Christian, uh, almost anti-Christian articles in it. It's purports to be a science magazine, but this cover, Um, in November last year, look at some of the things. Can you see them on there, Uh, on the cover? Questions about origins. Why? Why do we exist? It's on the cover there. Why do we grieve? Why are we irrational? Why are we conscious? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why Why are we good or evil? Why is the universe just right? Ask yourself, are any of those questions scientific questions? There's not one single question there that's a scientific question that you could experiment on, test, observe, repeat. They're all by questions. They're all religious questions. They're all ideological questions. So don't be fooled into thinking that when you hear something taught by a scientist, a scientific magazine, a scientific uh, speaker, that it's necessarily scientific. A lot of what people are teaching when it comes to origins is actually worldview, religious ideological, it's a belief and uh, these questions are not scientific you can't answer them by science and in spite of uh, that fact sadly many people turn not to the world uh, not to the Bible for answers but they turn to those very people and they say well yeah you tell us how we're here why we're here (laughs) you answer the big questions of life for us when that isn't science at all and some people are really clear in their prejudice, they're trying to keep the God of creation out of the uh, running. They don't want to consider questions questions um, might have an answer that to do with the Bible, to do with Scripture. So creation is very important. Some people are intent in shut- on shutting the door against the idea of God as creator and therefore any evidence being used to support the idea of creation is seen as a no-no. Here's an example. This person is a psychologist, and he argued this in a lecture, and he's talking about, when he says children here, he's particularly thinking of children that come up through to university. He says, parents have no God-given license to enculturate their children in whatever ways they personally choose. No right to limit the horizons of their children's knowledge, means if you're a Christian teaching them that there's a God. No right to bring them up in an atmosphere of dogma and superstition, or to insist that they follow the straight and narrow paths of their own faith. He also would believe that he does have the right, as a atheist, to teach your children, whether they're kindergarten age or the way up to uh, university, to teach them that there is no God, because for, for him that's science. But that's not science, that is a religion. This man, Tom Holland, has anybody heard of him out of interest? Okay. Well, Tom Holland's a very respected historian in this country, And He started life going to church as a young lad and uh, he's he's, uh, written a number of books. This one called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, I've read. It's a bit of a tome, but I found it very, very good. Showing, actually, that Christianity has hugely influenced our culture in many positive ways. And he says something very interesting towards the end of this book, about his own confusion as a youngster, as as a, a young child coming into teenage years. He said, slowly, like a dimmer switch being turned down, I've found my belief in God fading. Why would, Why should Homo sapiens, that's us, be granted a status denied Ammonites? Now, everything he's saying here is based on what he's been taught in the evolutionary system of things in school. And this is what he's saying. Why, if God existed, had he allowed so many species to evolve, to flourish and then utterly disappear? Those of extinction over millions of years, that's what he's referring to. Why, if God were merciful and good, had he permitted an asteroid to smash into the side of the planet, making the flesh on the bones of dinosaurs burst into flame, the Mesozoic cease to boil, and darkness to cover the face of the earth? Okay? I'm showing you an example of an intelligent man, influential man today, who says, I got really confused, though I was brought up to go to church, by the stuff I was learning. I did not spend my whole time as a child Worrying about these questions, but sometimes in the the dead of night, I would. The hope offered by the Christian story that there was an order and a purpose to humanity's humanity's existence felt like something that had forever slipped my grasp. Very sad, isn't it? He's not a cynic, if you ever hear this man or read him. He's not a cynic, but he's a non-believer. Why? Because what he was influenced to believe in school and through the education system made the Christian... uh, faith that he had in, in embryo as a boy disappear. Seemed irrelevant. He had to let go of it. But he knew that that offered purpose to ex- humanity's existence. Look, he knew it did. He knew, it offered ho- he knew that message offered hope, but he had to let go of it all. Battle for hearts and minds, fought at the level of history. Now, is this the answer to say, well, look, we've just got to concede that science tells you how the world came to be the Bible answers the why questions if you read Genesis it will never tell you why God created it gives you a lot of information about what God did sequence of events and when he did it but it doesn't tell you why he created you the Bible does tell you that as you move through the scriptures but not there in Genesis should we if we if people are so confident that God is evolution as some are should we say in the beginning God evolved opens in the earth rewrite Genesis 1 verse 1 I don't think too many people would be happy with that, do you? Even if they believe God used evolution, that wouldn't sit right with them. Why? Because it's not what the Bible says. So did God evolve the heavens and the earth? What do you think? Atheists teach evolution is true, evolution is incompatible with the Bible, so whether some of you Christians believe it or not, you should let go of Christianity, like Tom Holland, and just get real, and realise that If evolution is true, we don't need God as an explanation. So belief in the Bible, as a revelation from God, the one creator of all things, is seen as irrelevant by many people in the 21st century. Why? Because science, they think, has proven the Bible wrong. By science, they mean evolution, millions of years. We see in the UK, Lots of signs of the decline in Christianity in society. Here's just one example. Buildings that were once churches turned into buildings for other purposes. I moved to Leicester 21 years ago, and in that time, in my local few square miles, I've seen about four or five churches close, and none of them have reopened as, as Christian buildings. This is happening across country. Now, there are many good exceptions to this, but the general truth is Christianity is in decline. If I ask you, is the the country becoming more or less Christian week, week on week, what would you say? Most people would say it's becoming less Christian. That's not to be a doom and gloom merchant, it's just to be realistic. There's less tolerance of true Christianity in society than there used to be. Even to affirm that God made male and female is now controversial. Yeah, something as fundamental as that. Now, I want to ask you to think about this a bit. Why is confidence in the Bible, and in the God of the Bible being challenged today. I've got for you three points here. There could be others, but here's just three to think about. First of all, people are led by feelings. Our culture, we're generally led by what feels good. And that's extended, sadly, into the church as well. We all tend to be um, led more and more by our feelings, what we see and how we feel. How do you reach a generation that listens with its eyes and thinks with its feelings? That's the challenge, if you want to speak the truth in our culture today, that people don't make decisions based on what is objectively true, but often how they feel. A second point related to that is that a growing number of people today, and not just young people, no longer believe in absolute standards of right and wrong. Polls and surveys show this. In fact, there have been surveys in some Western countries, North America recently, Uh, A Barna research poll showed that some fantastically small number of Christians, professing Christians, believed in absolutes. The vast vast majority of the people who said they were Christians didn't believe there were absolute moral standards. Why? Because this Bible is no longer the benchmark. It's no longer the word of God. It could, from their perspective, maybe contain things which are good a moral code, but it's not absolute. And so, morality is relative, they make up their own mind. And then thirdly, and as I said, this is not to say that there aren't other reasons for the lack of confidence people have in the Bible and in God today, but Christian teaching has been disconnected from its historical basis. In other words, as you look at the book of Genesis, it's really the seedbed of all Christian teaching and doctrine. Why do we know what marriage is? Where's that come from? Why are we even wearing clothes this evening? What is sin? How do you define it? Why do we die? Why do we need a saviour? Why is Jesus called the last Adam? Big clue, because there was a first Adam. Why do we have a seven-day week? Why is there going to be one day a new heavens and a new earth? What's wrong with the present heavens and earth? Every one of those questions can only be answered, but is answered clearly in the first few chapters of Genesis. And so, there's a battle for hearts and minds, as my title says, but it's fought at the level of history. Now, these are two um, ends of the spectrum. I'm not saying that no one is in the middle, but a person who believes as a Christian that God created, believes God is a lawgiver, and believes that uh, he has the right to set the rules. A person who, at the other end of the spectrum, doesn't believe there's a God at all, has to believe in some form of evolution, because that's the only game in town, if you don't have an all-powerful creator God to make everything. Things must have got slowly and gradually somehow. Evolution, millions of years, but that's man's opinion. So you trust either God's word or man's opinion on this. That's the bottom line. But that has implications for the structure we build. We make up our own rules rather than believing there are absolute standards. Christian morality can't be defended if you don't have a Christian foundation. But if you don't believe there's God, you can make up your own rules. In fact, your own rules will clash often with other people's own rules, but as long as the majority of you, majority of the time, can agree, everything's okay, isn't it? And as long as that's enshrined in law, is morality determined by what is enshrined in law? No because what laws we have today are completely opposite, in some cases, to what laws there were 40, 50 years ago. Morality. If you believe you're a modified ape, and there's no creator at that end of the spectrum, then you eat and drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. You end up becoming fertiliser for some other little creature when you die. That's the best you can hope for. You're a lucky number that came up in the great casino of the universe. You're born, you suffer, you die, that's it. But if you're a Christian, You can say, I'm made for a reason, for a purpose. I'm made in the image of God, and God wants a relationship with me through Jesus Christ. He will save me, He will cleanse me, He will give me hope to live. Christ in us, said Paul the Apostle, the hope of glory. That's a very different way of looking at things. Now, you could be in the middle and say, look, I accept evolution in millions of years as the method of creation, but I'm still a Christian, and I believe life has meaning. And I would say, yes, you can be a Christian if you're trusting Jesus alone for your salvation, and you're truly repentant, and you truly have your faith in him. But do you know that Jesus believed and taught the things in Genesis as real events, real people, real places? So that would mean that you're saying, I'm going to trust you, Lord Jesus, but you were wrong about origins. Can you imagine... um, Doubting Thomas, going before the Lord as he saw his nail-piece hands after the resurrection saying, My Lord and my God, but I have to say you're talking about history. That's what people effectively are saying in the church today yeah. when they're saying that we don't need to believe what Genesis says. Now, here's a verse of scripture. I have taken it out of context, but I think I can do that because it um, really does apply here. If the foundations for what Christians believe are destroyed, what can righteous do? Now, you may not be a believer here, but that makes sense to you. Christians should be able to defend their faith, you might be thinking, as a non-believer. You're right. We should. But you should be able to defend what you believe, by the way, Dear, dear unsaved man or woman tonight. can you defend what you believe in the marketplace of ideas. If the foundations of Christianity are ignored, seen as irrelevant or mythological, if they're compromised, if they're flat out denied, how can a Christian hope, stand firm and defend his or her faith in the world we're living in today? A, a culture that's often hostile to Christianity. I love this verse in Proverbs. Um, Proverbs 3 verse 7 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and depart from evil. Now it's logical for someone who has no solid foundation for what they believe to be led by their feelings, as we heard, as we said earlier. It's logical for them to reject absolutes of morality. My actions aren't hurting anybody. Most people think that the way I'm behaving is okay. We could apply that to sexuality and all sorts of things, couldn't we? We see it happening, playing out in our society every single day. In other words, people think it's quite all right to do what is right in their own eyes as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, okay? Many um, people think that way, but this proverb challenges that man-centred, humanistic thinking. Ask the question in very simple terms, who sets the rules for you? Who sets the rules for your loved ones, if they're Christian or not? Who sets the rules for your neighbours, your friends? The people, as a Christian sometimes, if you're a Christian, that you talk to, and try to communicate to It says in the book of Isaiah, chapter 33, verse 22, a very interesting thing. It says, The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. He is our king. He will save us. Now, I think most Christians are very happy to have worship songs or old hymns that say, and, and they sing them with great gusto, Jesus is king, I will extol him, uh, wonderful saviour. But how many... Are equally happy to say, Lord, you are my judge and lawgiver, in their songs. It's all part of the same verse. God doesn't even take breath. You know, it's just, he is all of those things. Charles Darwin himself understood the connection that a person who doesn't believe in a creator ultimately gets to make their own rules. He said in his autobiography, A man who has no assured and ever-present belief in the existence of a personal God or of a future existence with retribution and reward can have for his rule of life, as far as I can see, only to follow those impulses and instincts which are the strongest or which seem to him the best ones. In other words, if if you don't believe there's a God, if you don't believe in there's a of judgment or reward, depending on how you've lived your life, then you just make it up as you go along. Whatever feels good, you do it, as long as no one gets hurt. That's really the philosophy, isn't it? So, morality, relative, it changes with the times. And it is changing with the times, isn't it? Very rapidly. I put this picture up earlier, but I want to flesh it out now with some life issues. Marriage, the sanctity of human life, the fact that human life is sacred. Where would you go back to defend that, by the way, Christian? God made us in his image, male and female, he created them. That's the only place you can go to defend that teaching of the sanctity, of the sacredness of human life. Why is abortion wrong? Why would euthanasia be wrong? Why is mucking about with human embryos different from doing the same with animal embryos? Because we're made in the image of God, that's why. But you have to go back to Genesis chapter 1 to defend it. You see the point. And the same is true of all of these other things that we see in society today. All of the things which Christians think are important in terms of how we live, are founded on, have their roots in the book of Genesis. I love this verse in in, in Psalm 119, verse 160. Thy word is true from the beginning. That's that King James. Or it might say in your version something like, the whole or the entirety of your word is truth, which is still true. From cover to cover, from beginning to end, it's all God's truth. It's true from the very beginning. In the the original Hebrew, it literally means, the beginning of your word is truth. Can I ask you a question? Which part of the Bible today, in our society, sadly even in the church, is most mocked at, scoffed at, said to be poetry, allegory, or otherwise disbelieved? Which book of the Bible would you say? I think it's the book of Genesis, primarily. God expects us to believe his word. Look at this verse. God is speaking through, the, through um, Isaiah the prophet. And the context is his creation. God says, All those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look. In other words, I will favor, I will look kindly upon this kind of person. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, someone who is humble and who trembles at my word, someone who has a high view of scripture who says, Lord, what are you teaching me today from your word? This is not just some human writing, well, it seems to say that, but it can't mean that because we're modern, because we're living in the 21st century, don't you know? No, Lord, what are you teaching me? Trembles at my word. That's what God wants of us. I find that very challenging. I hope you do too. A lot of people in the church, we we can sometimes have this sacred-secular divide. Do you know what I mean? We compartmentalise our faith. We've got this divide where there's things to do with faith, good things, Christianity, morality, things to do with church, holiness. We've got those on one side, but really, compared to the stuff that's going on in the world, certainly in the realm of science, stuff that's to do with reason, testing and experiment, real history, real facts of of, uh, geography and science and, and the world around us, that's stuff you can nail to the, nail down. That's really tangible, but this stuff is kind of floating. The stuff Christians believe is floating. I'm, I'm, I'm caricaturing how some people see it. But that's not the way we should think. We shouldn't, we shouldn't concede that that's the way it is. We mustn't compartmentalise things. Because the truth is, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Christian faith is can I put it like this, a holistic faith, or if you want it in more trendy terms, it's a package deal. It's all or nothing. We don't get to pick and choose which bits of the Bible we believe and which bits we don't believe. And if we do, we can be, we can be sure that some of the atheists, like Richard Dawkins, will have a go at us. He scoffs at such Christians. He, said, he says, so many Christians cherry-pick the Bible. And he really scoffs at that. We need to believe God's holy book. Do you ever meet a Muslim? I meet a lot of Muslims in Leicester. They all believe the Quran. They'll get Muslims who start telling you the Quran doesn't really mean what it says. And I assume it's the same with most um, of the world religions. But sadly, that happens in the world today. Our worldview. I mentioned at the beginning two worldviews in collision. The one that starts with God as creator, the one that says, there is no God. And I said there are variations on that theme. A world view is vital. It's something that influences how you look at the world and how you interpret everything you see. So let's illustrate that with this picture. and This is um, a bit of fun, but it uh, makes the point. Would that man hurt himself if he dives into the pool? Yes, he would, because these are paving slabs. See there? And he's drawn with chalk on the street, and for all the world, it looks like some kind of pool of water. The diving board's not real. He's there in his in his trunks, but he's uh, just pretending. This is the same, not real. It's a chalk drawing on the street. No clever um, computer wizardry. It looks three-dimensional because of the way he's drawn it. The same is true of this. There is no actual water there. No drain. No real no hose. Everything you see, including this water coming out, is drawn with chalk. Here's another one. Okay, we could go on for a long time. Julian Beaver. Look him up on the internet. Very clever chap. Is this little man, Julian Beaver, on the top of this world? No. He was standing at this end of the picture. The camera was placed here, looking up the street. But because of the way that he'd drawn it, from a certain angle, it looks three-dimensional. And all the pictures are the same. He's done them in a clever way. Your perspective makes all the difference. Where you are standing influences what you see. It influences your interpretation. Can you see where I'm going with this? Imagine another piece of evidence. String of letters, G-O-D-I-S-N-O-W-H-E-R-E. That's a fact. But what does it mean? How do you interpret it? Well, if you're an atheist, it's pretty obvious. Someone tell me. God is nowhere. And for the atheist, that's a fact. But no, sorry, Mr or Mrs Atheist, or Ms Atheist, or whatever you are, that's not a fact, that's just your way of looking at things. Because when I look at that, as a Christian, or anyone indeed, who believes in a creator, I say... God is now here. Now, hang on a moment, these could be both equally nice people, equally intelligent, both of them could have a string of degrees, both of them could be elegant of speech, have written lots of books, and impressive individuals, but they come to opposite conclusions. Why? Not because they're looking at different facts, but because the way they see things depends on what's in here. And what's in here depends on the foundational beliefs they were taught as a child and they've imbibed through what they've read and through their education. That's exactly what's going on in this battle for hearts and minds between creation evolution, millions of years versus thousands of years, and all the other debates that have to do with origins. Having the right worldview matters a great deal. Let's illustrate this um, with a couple of examples, and then we'll break. and I'll come back and do a bit more afterwards. What about design? Now, you think design wasn't controversial, but it is very controversial if you're going to say things that are living are designed. How do you look at this? You all see the same animals, we all see the same animals and plants and people across the face of the world, and we all recognise that they're brilliantly and intricately made, but does the design we see mean there's a designer with a capital D, a God, a creator? It all depends what glasses you're wearing, doesn't it? Everybody agrees that the things on the left-hand side of my picture were designed. That is to say, clever men and women had a plan, put it into action, and people constructed those things, even though something as simple as a clothes peg was designed. But the stuff on the right-hand side, they would say, even though that's intricately uh, more complex, even though it's micro-engineering in some cases, of a high order, so there's a water flea here, this is the tube feet, the hydraulic chief on one leg of a starfish, the eye of an eagle, incredible design. A seagull in its, and the way it flies. Think of the little muscles that move the wings of this dragonfly. Think of the tiny little uh, parts of this eye. So stupendously complicated. Ah, just an illusion. Because all you need is time and chance. Father, time, lady luck, mother earth, different trinity. You don't need Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creator God. You just need lots of time on this earth, lots of lucky accidents, and you can have those complex things. Design's just an illusion. Isn't it something other than the scientific evidence involved when someone can make that conclusion? Yes, it's their worldview. Their worldview that starts with prejudice against God. See, the evidence for design of something like this jet is obvious. It has many precisely made component parts that are all put together in the right place at the right time. They're organised correctly to make a functioning flying machine. Exactly the same argument for design is used for things that we see at the big level, the macro level or the micro level. The right parts of living things, brilliantly made, organised, coded for on the DNA, built by the cells of the creature, put together in the right place at the right time so that you have something like this gecko, for example. Four different species of geckos, and you know about geckos enough, I think, probably to know they run across walls and ceilings, and uh, they have this amazing ability even to run up polished glass. They do it because they've got these amazing feet. And underneath their feet, this is a picture underneath six geckos, six different species of geckos' feet, and you've got these pads, these ridges in those pads called lamellae. And those are each divided up into thousands of what you call CT or bristles. There could be 5,000 of them, little tiny bristles on these ridges in one square millimetre. Or if you're really old fashioned, one square sixteenth of an inch, okay, just helping you folks out. Evolutionists, Darwinists teach that natural selection can construct such complexity, but they have no science behind that, that's the belief. It would be no good having this amazing foot design if it could only stick. Now, what is the point of these little bristles? It means that they can give a massive surface area for touching the surface that we're running on. Each of those thousand branches of those CT bristles themselves have a little spatula on That means that there can be a million or so in a square millimetre. And that means you get this amazing surface area touching that surface, and that gives you Special forces, physics forces, come into play. Forces that only happen when you've got a really close attachment of a surface. That means that you can actually hang a weight from a gecko. People have done this kind of experiment. Ten times its body weight, and it can still stick to the ceiling. It's almost over-designed by God, I would say. But the point I'm making is those are precisely organised parts precisely made and organised correctly to do a function. The argument for design is very powerful. If you go to the level of the molecular machines that we have in our cells, this is just one of thousands of different kinds of machines. Some of them are motors spinning around. This one is walking in your cells. It's not a video, of course. It's a a construction uh, done on a computer. But this little kinesin machine is like a postman. It's taking a bag of proteins from where they were manufactured in the cell. It's got address tags on the surface, delivery instructions for where it's going to take that sack of proteins so that those proteins can be un- offloaded at the site of manufacture, made into some enzyme for performing a reaction quickly or a structural protein in the cell. That's going on in logistics. You know, it's going on in, inside your cells right now, right? okay? And uh, if you really concentrate, you can feel these little... No, that's a joke. Um, every step that takes is so tiny that it would need to walk 125,000 steps to cover one millimetre distance. Each step is one, eight nanometers. So it's incredible design. And that's the kind of thing, friends, that should make us think of a creator God and not buy into the idea that somehow lucky accidents, deep time, um, somehow produce that. We don't have scientific explanations for those motors forming. We don't have scientific explanations for the big stuff forming. What you would need is a series, at least, of intermediate steps constructed that even looked plausible, but no one ever has managed to construct a series of intermediate steps that look slightly plausible for even one of the many thousands of machines. No one's ever done it for even a single machine. I can assure you, if they could do, they would have done so. But even that would just be a theory, because that wouldn't mean it did actually happen. So these things aren't just complicated, they're irreducibly complicated, meaning that you can't take away one part of a complex thing like this, and it still functions. Everything has to be present for it to work. Or to put it another way, nothing works until everything works. It has to be all or nothing. You can't build it up gradually, piecemeal, step by tiny step, which is what evolution would have to do. So we're looking at this from the point of view of science now. We talked about this from the point of view of worldview. One more example, then we'll break. And I'll come back with some more examples after the break and also bring us back to why this matters. This isn't just about science. What about our evolution? I thought I would just update you from the last few months of what some of the top experts are saying on where we came from. Now, if I said to you, what evidence would you say supports the idea that man evolved from apes? Or that you have heard that supposedly supports the idea of man from ape-like creatures? You'd probably point to things like, well, isn't our DNA meant to be about 99-98% similar to chimps? That, by the way, is completely wrong. I'm not going to go there tonight unless you want to ask me later. Or you might point to the, uh, the ape-men, so-called the hominids, sometimes called hominins, that supposedly detail the ancestry of man from early primitive ape stage all the way through to upright, naked ape, us human beings, homo sapiens. Well, let's have a look at this. And I'm going to just give you a few quotations from experts. Back in 1965, this image appeared in a children's book. And um, Rudolf Zalinger was the uh, producer of this image. Since then, of course, this is extremely well known. These ape to human progression images, this parade of apes losing up to man, have become so commonplace that they appear in textbooks, in popular magazines, and uh, all over the world, but there was a report just um, in 2001. I don't know if anybody heard of um, a report in the media. It's brief. They said, "Oh, we found some new um, ancestor man called Dragon Man." Did anybody hear about that? Yeah, and uh, it was given the scientific name Homo longi, and, and said that this was another uh, another nail in the coffin for those who believe that. Um, God created humans specially in his image, because here we had evidence of primitive man. Well, Adam Rutherford, Dr. Adam Rutherford, a geneticist in this country, uh, he wrote an article in which he said, and this is in the title of the article, um, Dr. Rutherford says, simple diagram of ape changing to man is wrong, so should be removed from school books. An evolutionist, He's one of the country's leading geneticists, and he's saying these kind of images are so wrong. They've known it. They're wrong for years, by the way. He's saying they should be removed from the school textbooks. They should be, because this leads people to think we've got the evidence. Well, he said this. And so, remember, as I read this, folks, uh, as I show you some information now, I'm reading from the horse's mouth, not from a Christian, not from a person who, be- who disbelieves evolution, from a person who believes evolution. He said, Yeah, here's how I view the human family tree. From here onwards, everything, by the way, all these names you see here, all of these would be descendants of Adam from the point of view of almost any creation anthropologist in the world, any bible believing Christian who's an anthropologist, they would put them all as human. There's a few apes back here, okay? Notice it says, unknown ape ancestors. This is the Daily Mail we're talking about. It's not Creation magazine. Because we don't know who our ancestor was. That's the point. And he said this, swathes of evidence have been amassed since Darwin's time, from fossil bones to, more recently, DNA analysis. This information means the classic picture of mankind's development misrepresents our evolution in two important ways. First, it implies that there is a purposeful direction to evolution towards two legs, Large brains and tools. Okay. The second floor is the implication of a linear progression. Let's go back to this picture. This picture misrepresents things. It says we're progressively moving from ape to human and from primitive tool use to intelligent man. This linear progression is wrong. It misrepresents the facts. The truth is we don't have the fossils to support it. I could share quotes from others who say that. And he says, continue here with me we've come to realise that we don't actually know the direct pathway from early humans to us. We've got dotted lines. He's talking about how you see family trees of humans and ape-like humans and apes, all connected with lines. He said, we've got dotted lines. In other words, we don't know. It's It's just a supposition, it's a guess, what's related to what. We've got dotted lines and working theories, but for the most part, we're no longer sure who our ancestors were. Is that a reason? Is this sort of evidence something that should make people say, let's medicine Adam and Eve, and let's believe that God made us from apes? They don't know. He's even being honest about it. Let let me uh, give you one more quote, in case you're not convinced. uh, There was an online article last year, in May, and the title of that article says... Evolutionary dispute. Most human origin stories are not compatible with known fossils. (laughs) Notice they're called stories. This is a secular website. Most human evolution stories, they're just stories, and they're not even compatible with the fossils we've got as evolutionists. And this man, who is um, quoted here, when you look at the narrative for hominin origins, it's just a big mess. There's no consensus. There's no agreement whatsoever, said Sergio uh, Almecica, Amelchist- I think it's you say, um, a senior research scientist at the American Museum of Natural History's Division of Anthropology and a lead author of the review. So here you've got a clever man, leading expert. He's saying this subject of human evolution is a mess, complete mess. There's no agreement whatsoever. Then it says here... 150 years, and he's talking about since Darwin's book, The Descent of Man, where he particularly homed in on human evolution, 150 years later, more than 50 fossil ape genera are now documented across Africa and Eurasia. However, many of these fossils show mosaic combinations of features that do not match expectations. A mosaic is like a weird mixture of things which don't seem to go together. Duckville platypus is a mosaic. It's got fur like a mammal, it lays legs, It's got poisonous spurs, it's got a bill like a duck. It's a weird mosaic, a mixture of things that don't seem to go together but do go together. And he says, what we've got with these ape fossils is mosaic combinations of features that do not match what we expected with our evolutionary theories. And then he says, as a consequence, there is no scientific consensus on the evolutionary role played by these fossil apes. I've shown you two experts there, folks. One, a geneticist, one of paleoanthropologists who studies the bones, and what do they say? We well, ain't got a clue, frankly. There's no agreement between us on what related to what and who our ancestors were. I'm not making this up. That's what they say. And by the way, that was an article that was reviewing an article in the journal Science the same month, May last year. The Science journal is the top journal, along with Nature, in the whole world. That's how it's a top credible journal to publish. That's a state-of-the-art. So we'll finish with this, finish this part. I came across this pithy observation earlier this year, and uh, I think this is quite good. Scripture teaches that the job of a pastor is to preach the word, based on 2 Timothy 4 verse 2. Which biblical text will he be preaching through when he goes to, gets to the part about humans evolving from monkeys? Uh, cogs are going, aren't they? Which biblical text? There ain't a text, (laughs) sorry, if you don't like my um, slang. (laughs) There is no biblical text, people, because God made us, in his own image, he made Adam and Eve. He didn't make us from apes. God made apes, they're wonderful creatures, but he didn't make us by morphing some kind of ape over deep time into a human being. So, it's a battle for hearts and minds. Is it just the case, with the examples I've given you, that we're ignoring the facts. No, I'm agreeing with the latest scientific evidence that says, in this case, we don't know who our ancestors were. If you don't know, folks, then let me tell you, does. Okay? Well, that's just what it looks like for later. We're going to break now. And uh, it may seem a strange place to stop, but uh, you'll be able to ask me questions in a break and, you, and maybe look at some of the literature. There's various literature at the back. I'll say, give you a few more pointers later. But um, can I encourage you, please, to consider uh, looking at the Christian magazine, ask Andrew and I if you've got any pointers for literature, but I'll give you some more pointers towards the end. God bless. Well, um, as you continue sipping your cups of tea, etc., if you don't know anything about our organisation, which I guess is probably most of you, uh, Creation Ministries International, uh, as it says here, we have a website, very easy to remember, creation.com. And that is uh, a place you can go and um, find articles. It's a bit like walking into a library. If you go to the topic section um, from the bar, the black bar at the top, there's a place called Topics. It's a bit like walking into a library and you get, get many, many different subject areas, which a bit would be a bit like g- being guided to a section of the library that deals with the questions you're interested in. Alternatively, you can use a search engine right, and type in your questions there. And we've got, I think it's about twelve or 13,000 articles in English, everything from a one-pager all the way through to in-depth stuff, almost like the level of, a, of an academic journal. Uh, there's also articles in about 50 languages other than English because it's a very multicultural society. So there are so many different cultures living in Britain, and I'm sure you have many people you know living even in Paynton who speak other, their, their, English is not their mother tongue. So if you have someone like that, you can point them to, English, uh, to articles in their own language. There's stuff you can watch, stuff you can uh, listen to, podcasts you can download and listen to in the car. Uh, we've got uh, on the front page, you see halfway down this picture, a conference taking place. And if you're interested in this kind of topic in London, central London, uh, end of September we've got a conference with 14 different speakers, We've had a blast several times now with this, with uh, 900 to 1,000 people attending from maybe up to 20 countries across Europe. It's really, really encouraging to meet with so many like-minded Christians uh, from all walks of life, all different sorts of churches, all coming together because they believe what Bible teaches and they just want to learn a bit more about some of the evidence in the world around us. So that's a great time. Um, you can take one of these flyers or several of them off the table at the back, and uh, where where Andrew is. The other thing we do is every couple of weeks we send out a newsletter by email. It's free, and it give because there's a daily changing article on the website. We give you some of the highlights of things we've been writing about, or podcasts, or bits of video, and uh, we cover them in, in bite-sized segments. And then you can, if you want, click on it. What you've read. And it takes you into a full article or a full video about it. And so right across the subject, we, we have that. The sort of things we've been touching on tonight and uh, we'll be touching on tomorrow, um, so many subjects. So if you're interested in this kind of thing, would like a free newsletter, um, all you need to do, I'm just going to pop, pop a couple of those going around on clipboards. Just put your name, uh, sorry, you don't even need to put your name, just put your email address. If you want to be told about meetings like this happening in your local area, put your postcode, and then we will target you for that. But that's all it's used for. We will not spam, we will not send you stuff you haven't asked for, we will not pass your information to third parties, I promise. Uh, And if you decide you're buying too many, or you're not using them so much, you just unsubscribe with a click of a button, it's dead easy. But I encourage you to consider that as a great way of getting information. And also, it's very easy, Christian, to read the article and think, I'm going to pass it on to so-and-so, so-and-so my, my friend or this person I've been trying to reach. Say, check out this article. I'm interested to know what you make of it. You have yourself a discussion. And the result of that discussion might lead to you being able to share your faith, ultimately. So that's a great thing to do. Well, we were looking earlier about worldview and how your different worldview influences how you interpret what you're looking at. The scientific facts or evidence. They don't just speak for themselves, they're interpreted. And the way you see things, remember what I said, depends on what's in here. What's in here depends on the beliefs you have, your foundational beliefs, where you're standing, what you learned as a young person, what you've been taught. And when it comes to the age of the earth, this is one of those controversial topics, these hot potato topics. Or people say it's just an irrelevance, absolutely irrelevant. Well, let me get you thinking about it just for a moment. I think the world is a few thousand years old, probably 6,000 years old or, or a few, few more thousands, certainly not hundreds of thousands or millions of years. Why do I believe that? Number one, because I think that's what the Bible clearly reveals. Number two, because I don't think the scientific evidence supports billions and millions of years. Now, things are not always what they seem when it comes to the age of something. It's not like a dinosaur or a fossil or an egg or a person or an ape or some DNA. You can show pictures of all these things. But how do you show a picture of age? You can't. It's an idea. It's a concept. Let me get you thinking about this. How old grandpa's axe? Grandpa, you're sat at grandpa's knee, and even if some of you are grandpa's yourself or grandma's, imagine when you were a small child, you sat at grandpa's knee, and he's showing you his treasured axe, and he said, this is a fantastic axe. It belonged to my great-great-great-great-great-grandpa. Great and he purchased this axe, believe it or not, over 300 years ago. And you're going, wow, Grandpa, that's absolutely amazing. Tell me more. He said, well, actually, in the time since he purchased this axe, it's had six new axe heads and 12 new axe handles. <laughs> How old is this it? axe? It's not a trick. Your bodies are like that. How old is your body? Pretty obvious that you're not your birth age. Certainly not. Even your bones, when you're young, get recycled every years or so. Did you know that? Apart from a few stem cells in your bone marrow, you're all... Not, none of you is original. Some of your cells are just a few days old. They get recycled quite quickly. So when it comes to age, things are not always what they seem. I could show you someone who looks like an old man, and yet he might only be 17, but he's got a terrible disease, or progeria, that makes him advance in his age, and looks, it's a terrible thing. Age can fool you. You only know how old something is because you've got something to compare against. You know roughly how old a 30-year-old looks because you've got many hundreds or maybe thousands of 30-year-olds in your data set to compare against, subconsciously. But if the age indicator lets you down, you misjudge the age. Now, you might be thinking, I only look 21, and you'd be wrong. But uh, (laughs) what is age? How old are these rocks? How old do they look to you? How would you determine that? This is on the Norfolk coast, and there you've got what scientists can say is the Upper Cretaceous white chalk overlying the Lower Cretaceous red chalk. Okay, sedimentary rocks said to be millions, in this case tens of millions of years old, back to the age of dinosaurs. How would you measure that age? You can't measure it by, the way by looking at some radioactive material in the rocks because they're sedimentary rocks laid down by water. They don't have any radioactive material in them at all. That's not ever how sedimentary rocks like this are determined, uh, the age is determined. It's always determined by other secondary means. How old are these rocks? Surely these rocks would take of years to form because they must have cooled down. From, these basalt columns must have cooled down from molten rock formed these, uh, these kind of um, uh, ge- these geometrical shapes that you also see on uh, Giant's Cause and that would take millions of years, wouldn't it, to cool? Everything we know about molten rocks would tell us that it's a long time, but things are not always what they seem. What about... Um, and by the way, I'm not going to answer all these questions right now. I believe those rocks form quickly, both in both cases. Um, when I was at university, I did some geology for a year, and I was told that in order to form granite rocks, such as you see at Bodmin Moor or, or Dartmoor, you would need to cool rocks down over tens of millions of years. The, big crystal, the bigger the crystals in those granite rocks, the slower the cooling time. But then a few years after I left university, someone pointed out in a scientific paper that actually, if there was a lot of water in the magma, that water would be outgassing as steam. And because of the a bit like evaporation of sweat, it cools you down. It would cool down the magma, and it would slash the cooling times by orders of magnitude. Literally, maybe a million times faster cooling, because there was more water outgassing as steam. That brings some of the rocks that they were talking about by the ocean down to cooling times of a few months from tens of millions of years. This is a secular scientific report. I'm talking about. So things are not always what they seem. This is a layer of rock in pale green right across North America. It reaches up, not quite into Alaska, but reaches up across um, Canada uh, towards Greenland and right down towards Mexico and across the East and West Coast. And that um, layer is a flat layer in most places, except where it's pushed up through movements, such as near Grand Canyon. Near Grand Canyon, the sandstone is lifted up at least a mile in a big plateau called the Kaibab Upwarp, and at the edges of that big uplifted plateau, there is what you call a monocline all around, a single fold. And The limbs of that fold, you're looking at part of the monocline here, and there's very folded rock in those those limbs of the the, um, upwarped plateau. In this case, there's a man for scale, can you see, here? If you remove all the overburden, all the bits and pieces of weathered rock, you would see that there is no fracturing as it has bent. If you take brittle rock and bend it, it will fracture, stands to reason. But all over the world, and this is just one example, you see rock that looks like it's behaved plastically, like plasticine that's been bent, sometimes through very tight angles. Uh, this is a piece of rock I picked up in 1987 when I was doing field work, geology field work in the Spanish Pyrenees. At that time, I was a Christian, but I was a believer in millions of years, and I was deeply puzzled by what I was looking at. How could this piece of rock have been bent through almost 90 degrees without fracturing? Didn't know the answer. I kept the piece of rock. I also took this photograph at the time. There I was, a young geology student studying uh, incredible folds. This would be called an overthrust. How do you fold rock like that? To mention the tremendous energy involved, you bend it and it doesn't fracture. Now, some places you do see fracturing. You Go to Crackington Haven on the north uh, Cornwall coast and you'll see fractures and faults. But very often you see this kind of thing. The only answer is it must have been soft when it was folded for it to behave in this way. If you bury a sandstone, for example, under deep pressure, and moderate heat, as the evolutionists would say, and they behave plastically, you will no longer have a sandstone, you'll have a quartzite, a metamorphosed sandstone. Totally different physical characteristics, totally different chemistry. One of the hardest rocks man knows of. If you metamorphose a mud um, limestone with seashell fossils, such as the ammonites, the limestone on, on uh, Lyme Regis or, or Charmouth, you will get a marble, which you can use for your worktop, a very resistant rock, very hard rock. You metamorphose a mudstone, a shale, it would be, it's a very friable rock, it, you can break it almost with your fingers, but that would become a slate, such as you find in the quarry of in Wales. Very, very hard, she, she uh, metamorphic rock. Totally different physical characteristics, totally different chemistry, and therefore, pressure and moderate heat is not an option. You cannot use heat and pressure to bend these rocks. Therefore, they must have been soft when they were folded. Soft sediment deformation. Therefore, the timescale for laying them down and folding them is so swift, the rock didn't have time yet to go hard before it was folded. Are you with me? This is powerful evidence against millions of years for laying down the rocks and folding them. I presented this evidence in front of professional geologists and they cannot gainsay it. They don't like it, but they can't gainsay it. Why? Because it's obviously true. And so the wool is being pulled over people's eyes on this. Here are some hills on an island. You know that old phrase we have in English, someone is as old as the hills? Some of you folks in here, I'm sorry to say, are older than the hills. <laughs> this island formed in 1963. I'm just a bit younger than some of these hills. Okay? Volcanic eruptions, North Atlantic Ocean, just about 70 kilometres, 45 miles or so south of Iceland, and you've got... The Mid-Ocean Ridge runs down underneath the Atlantic Ocean, right in the middle, bigger than the Himalayas, really. It's an undersea uh, uh, mountain range. It intersects Iceland, and just south of Iceland, you've got very active volcanism, and it produces um, sometimes volcanic eruptions at the surface. In this case, it formed an island. And within less than 12 months, when it was photographed, you had that picture uh, on the right-hand side there. You also had this picture. Already, in less than 12 months, there were rocks on a beach with the tide coming in and out, where you could have walked at low tide, rolled uh, and rounded by the action of the surf. Astonishing. And An Icelandic geologist who visited this in 1963 said it's almost beyond belief, because he said the geology was so mature. And If you go to that island today, vegetation covers it. It's eroding away pretty quickly, the island, but vegetation is there, there are invertebrates there, there are birds that nest there, there are insects that pollinate plants, etc. There's an ecosystem there, and all in less than a human lifetime. Things are not always what they seem when it comes to age. None of this proves the age of, age of the Earth of only thousands of years in the Bible, but I'm showing you evidence that shows that it's not ridiculous to believe that a world like ours could form much much short in much shorter time frame than many may think if stuff like islands can form in a year and in a few in less than 20 years you can get ecolog- ecological relationships between animals there isn't it possible that god made something a few thousand years ago i think so prejudice would tell many people that can't happen because they don't want to believe they're made in the image of god and that the creator owns them and sets the rules that's really the bottom line it's uncomfortable to think the Creator God, who, to whom I'm accountable, and that's why I want to come back full circle to what I said at the beginning. This is not just about interesting science. Some of us find the science interesting. It's about where we came from ultimately, what makes us tick, why am I here? The big questions of life: Where do we come from? What's our origin? Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? What happens after death? Is there life after death? Why is there death and suffering? That's another big question of life, isn't it? How do we answer these questions? Well, if you go to Scripture, it's very clear that God created a perfect world. Very good, God called it. Which in the Hebrew means morally and physically perfect. There was no death and suffering. There was no decay and disease. There were no animals killing each other. The Bible describes a picture where animals only ate plants. And was so. Genesis 1 verse 30. People and animals were vegetarian in the beginning. It didn't stay like that because man rebelled, Genesis chapter 3. Man disobeyed God. We heard about that in the reading just before we started that Justin read. God cursed that world because of man's rebellion. Eventually, several centuries later, there was a flood of global dip- proportions that destroyed this world. And it's interesting in the media, every year nearly, you'll hear of some natural disaster and they'll say it was a flood of biblical proportions. Have you, how many times have you heard that? Many, many times over the years I've heard that. They know in the heart, you see. Uh, think about how much Christian terminology, as an aside, still appears in the mounds of arch They'll talk about something big being a leviathan or a behemoth, yeah? They won't call it a dinosaur. They know in their hearts that we're dealing with something different than uh, an ordinary elephant they'll talk about a blood of biblical proportions. They'll use all sorts of biblical phrases, even that Jesus used. Some of them don't even know they're using biblical phrases. But it's interesting. Of course, this ends this slide at the bottom with the word Christ, because confusion is Tower of Babel, by the way. The, f- the top four words, creation, curse, catastrophe, confusion, are what happens in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. The part of Genesis that even many people who say they're evangelical don't believe. They say the history starts at chapter 12. Well, Jesus and the New Testament writers and the Apostles believed it was history right back to Adam. Luke traces Jesus' own genealogy in Luke chapter 3 back to Adam, son of God. So if we say that Adam was just a metaphor, a myth, an ape-man, we're actually saying that Jesus was descended from either a myth or descended from an ape-man. Let's be logical, that's a pretty serious charge, but that's exactly what people are saying if they stop to think about it. I mentioned the age of the earth. You might think, well, it's just a side issue. Well, for the person who believes that, consider the following. Which are we going to trust? Ultimately, we can trust the Word of God, which is authentic, inerrant, without error, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, trustworthy and true, and we can do what Jesus did when he was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. He would quote scripture and say, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. He quoted scripture, he stood on the authority of scripture. Or we can put our trust in the theories and ideas of men and women who are not there, who are not there to see the world created, but who assure us it's billions or millions of years old and that everything that we see today can come about without the need for a designing hand, without the need for a plan and a purpose. And yet, evolutionary beliefs that people hold to are not the same that Darwin believed they held to, because they're being rewritten and rewritten and rewritten. Compare that to the scriptures. It is written, it's solid, it's dependable, it's trustworthy, you can stake your life on it, or it is being rewritten all the time. The theories that people are propounding today to support evolution are different from the ones in the past. There are plenty of people today in leading evolutionary circles who are saying natural selection isn't the way that evolution happens. Mutations are not what gives you the new material that natural selection works with. Some people are still evolutionists, but they deny natural selection and mutations. Why? Because they know they don't work. They know they don't create anything new. Mutations are just destructive. So are we going to trust men and women who, who, however nice and polite and well-meaning and honest some of them may be, ultimately they are sinners, they are flawed and when they've rejected the word of God, they're actually guilty of unbelief. Are you going to trust in them to take you into further unbelief or believe God's word? It's really that simple. I know that's quite a stark choice. It's meant to be a challenge. Now when you think about evolution, it's not just interesting, potentially, to some people, an interesting biological theory of how animals and plants change over time. It's a horrible process, because in order for the the fittest to survive, the weak, the unfit, must die, so that they don't pass on their genes to the next generation. That's the whole way evolution is supposed to work. Dog eat dog, survive to the fittest. Nature, red in tooth and claw, as the poet Alfred Lord Tennyson put it in his poem, Memoriam. This is the way evolution works. Suffering, death, predation, disease, parasites. Is that the way God's got the world up in order to ultimately bring you and I into existence? What does the Bible say? The Bible says death is not a creative process, but is the result of human rebellion. Therefore, says Apostle Paul, just as through one man, clearly Adam, sin entered the world, one man, his actions, Genesis 3, Therefore, as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, death is the result of sin. And thus, death spread to all men because all sinned. Why are we sinners? Why do we die? Because our ancestor Adam sinned. Why are we called sinners? Do we sin because we are sinners? Or is it that because we sin, we are sinners? In other words, what is the Bible saying here? It's saying it's because we're sinners that we sin. It's in our constitution. That's what it says here. Sin and death are spread to us. It's our fatal disease. It's the problem. And of course, we do add up to our we add a debt to sin through our lifetimes. That's our predicament. That's the bad news, but of course there's glorious good news. The bad news, clearly taught in Genesis, is that sin came into the world through one man. As Adam all dies, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 and verse 22. Genesis is therefore the foundation for sin, the foundation for death. It gives us the the definition for where those things came from. Sin is not just some undesirable social behaviour that we need to root out of our lives because it would make society a better place. Sin is rebellion against God. That's what the Bible makes clear. That's the bad news, but the good news is Because we messed up, because we have a great need, there is a saviour because Jesus, the God-man, became the second man, the last Adam, came to our rescue. And the good news is that if I repent of my sin, if I have a change of mind, if I turn away and put my faith in him, allow allowed the fact that he has done everything necessary, nothing I can do to make me right with God, then the Bible says my sin debt is washed away. It's cleansed away. God puts righteousness on me. Jesus pays the fine, Jesus is punished in my place and I'm so glad about that. And every true Christian says, praise God for that, thank God for that. The Gospel is founded on Genesis. And if you get away, if you take away Genesis as a historical book, you have no longer the teaching that defines sin, defines death, and explains why the Gospel makes sense. If you have no sin and death as a real issue for humanity, then you can ask the question quite legitimately, why did Jesus need to come into the world? Why did he need to die? If all that God was doing through sending Jesus was giving us a good example, why would Jesus have died? So we have the importance of the Gospel in Genesis. Here's that verse I mentioned. Since by man came death, says Paul, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, that's the bad news, that's our predicament. Even so in Christ, here's the good news, all should be made alive. All that believe and trust in him will be made alive. This whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, this great chapter on the resurrection, is full of comparisons between the first man and the last man, the last Adam. Between the natural man and the heavenly man, the man of dust and the man of heaven. And if we have faith, if we connect, we're all in Adam, but we need to be in Christ by faith. And if we are, then the death that we face is not something to be worried about because ultimately the grave is just the beginning of eternal life. A death, where is your sting? A grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a great uh, battle cry of Apostle Paul. Now I want to ask you in the light of that, which of the Adams then, in Genesis, is, uh, in, in the Bible, in this case, in 1 Corinthians 15, which of these Adams is not essential for the gospel? Look at that verse. Which Adam is not essential for the gospel? I remember having a conversation once in Stoke-on-Trent many, many years ago, probably about 15 years ago, with uh, an, uh, some, several people on a Saturday, and this clergyman came up, young younger man with his dog collar, and... Um, he clearly didn't agree with what I was saying, so he began to uh, take me to task. And uh, it was a polite conversation, and I, I, what I was really up against was that he simply didn't believe Genesis. So I said to him, so let me get this straight. You believe that Adam was a representative of humanity? He said, yes. Adam was, um, you know, at best, a myth, a metaphor, but not a, a historical figure. And he said, yes. And I said... And I must admit I was doing this deliberately. I said, so when it says as in Adam all die, it really just should mean as in a myth all die? And when it says death came into one man through uh, death came into the world through one man, it's really death came into one, into the world through a myth. And when it says that Adam was an ancestor of Jesus, Jesus descended from all those characters, Jesus was descending from a metaphor. You got the point. You see, it makes mockery of the whole New Testament. It's not just a case of, oh, that's just your interpretation of Genesis. How many times Christian, if you believe in creation, how many times have you been told, if you stand on the authority of Scripture on creation, that's just your interpretation? Anybody? A few of you? If you share your faith, you will find that that's a classic remark. No, it's not just my interpretation, it's Jesus' interpretation. It's Paul, it's Luke, it's Peter, that's what they taught, that's what they believed and so we've got to be very careful. There's no room for Adam in the evolutionary scheme. And so when many churchmen, church women, many theologians and Christian leaders today will argue that God used, Ada, uh, God used some kind of ape and morphed it into a man over time, or that he took some farmer um, uh, in, the, in the Neolithic who had no soul and He put his soul into him. These are all tack-on ideas that are not written in the Bible, Designed to sort of accommodate evolution in the frame of things. What does the apostle Paul mean to be made alive? That's what we said in this verse. In Christ, all should be made alive. Certainly, it's eternal life, life in uh, eternal life in heaven, not hell. Life in its fullness, life in and uh, all its abundance. Now, that's what we would say, isn't it? And so, when Jesus was walking the earth, he healed the sick. He even raised the dead. You know, Jesus did heal people's bodies, but the ultimate healing we need is spiritual healing. We need to be confident of heaven to come. And um, When you look at this statement here, which I came across in a, in a talk made by Professor Arthur, uh, Professor, uh, Arthur Ernest Wilder-Smith, uh, back in the 80s, I found this on YouTube, I knew of him. He had three doctorates, he was a brilliant man, very brilliant man. But he said something so interesting here, in a talk... Where he was giving a gentle but firm critique of theistic evolution, the idea that God used evolution. He says, if God worked by evolution, then Jesus ought never to have preached the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus is the creator. All things were made by him and for him, for his glory and enjoyment. Now, if he made the world by the process of eliminating the handicapped sick. You got that? That's what, of the fittest, death of the unfit. If that's how God made the world, then he ought never to have said, "'Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth.'" You see, everything which is Christian, everything which is really the mind of Christ has been cut out if you say that it was done by chance mutation and natural selection, sorting out the unfitted from the fit in order that the race may survive. Do you see what he's saying? If God used evolution, of the fittest, to create life, and ultimately us human beings, if he created this doggy dog world where the strongest survive and evolve, why would Jesus go about helping the unfit and the weak and the diseased? It makes no sense. If God created using death over millions of years, why does the New Testament say, 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death? Why does the Bible call death an enemy in the New Testament? But make it. why would it be the case that God would make death his creative process in the Old Testament if evolution was true? Because it isn't. It's theologically an utterly bankrupt idea. Now, not every person who holds to evolution has thought that through. I say that with respect. But it is utterly, utterly against the word of God. Jesus, his teaching was that it was virtuous to be meek, to help the weak, and so on. But if God used evolution, that makes no sense whatsoever, as Dr. Woodsmith ably pointed out. We're almost done. Evolution's implication is that death is not a consequence of sin, contrary to Genesis chapter 3, contrary to Romans chapter 5, contrary to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's only in a logical step, one logical step, to deny the atonement of Jesus was even necessary, and that's exactly what we see people doing today. It used to be denied by people who were avowedly liberal. Even decades ago, even last even in the 19th century. But now people say, yeah, Jesus didn't bear the punishment for our sins, and they say in the same breath that they're evangelical. Well, why do they say that? Because we've swallowed the idea that death is not a consequence of sin, something we need to be delivered from, but that death was in the world for millions of years before human beings existed and actually was necessary to bring us into existence. Survivor of the fittest. Death of the unfit. Death is in the ending room of evolution. Without death, you cannot have evolution. But in the Bible, death is the consequence of human rebellion. Very, very different history of death, folks, isn't it? Very different history of death. And, you know, Charles Darwin knew that this was a gospel. He wasn't an atheist. He was agnostic, he said. He wasn't, I think, the devil incarnate. He wasn't some nasty, horrible individual. He was a man who followed where his theories and ideas took him, and he became a very sad man. If you read his autobiography, he stopped listening to music, he stopped appreciating art and literature and poetry, he stopped appreciating nice things, he admits that, because he had revived a theory and propounded a theory that was ugly and that was hopeless. And He says to Thomas Henry Huxley in a letter just a, couple, uh, just a few years uh, well, actually, in 1860, so this is about um, 20 years before he died. He says, my good and kind agent for the propagation of the gospel. That is the devil's gospel. What he meant was, I'm appreciative that you, Thomas Henry Huxley, are, pro- are pr- um, promoting my ideas, because he was a bit of a recluse himself. He was very happy for Darwin's bulldog, as he was named, Thomas Henry Huxley, to, pr- to really force these ideas out there. But he knew it would be very, very bad for Victorian society, for people to believe that they evolved and that there was no creator. And so he knew it was going to be perceived as a devil's gospel. And friends, there you have it from the architect of the theory. We need to reconnect the Bible's history to the real world. Creation does matter. I know that many eminent people think differently from what I've just said. But remember this. According to scripture, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. True wisdom is not to do with how many degrees from colleges or universities I may have. It's not to do with how eloquent I may be in my speech. True wisdom is not to do with how, whether I'm a master of debate. True wisdom is not to do with anything other than me fearing God and believing his word. Remember that verse, Isaiah 6 verse 2? God will favour, he will look upon the one who trembles at his word, who takes his word seriously. The world may estimate, give an estimate, a low estimate of who you and I are if we believe that, but God will see us as people that He favours. And I love this verse in, in conclusion. Paul says, as he came, this was a man, incredible intellect, Apostle Paul. If you study some of his books, like Romans, for example, you know he was, had a powerful intellect. But he says, my speech and my preaching, as I came to you, Corinthian Christians, was not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? Why, Paul? Because I didn't want your faith to be in the wisdom of men. What's your faith in? What's my faith in? It needs to be in the power of God. Someone was telling me in the interval about how when he got, became a Christian, first time he looked, looked at a daisy, that daisy, he suddenly saw it. He was kneeling down, doing a border, he saw that it just daisy, and that daisy spoke to him of the majesty of God, the wow, the artistry of God. Just a daisy. I say just a daisy. You see the point? So, friends, let's, let's make sure we're standing upon the Word of God. If you want to explore further, and you can ask some questions in a moment, um, I mentioned the importance of not imbibing theistic evolution. As a viewer, I tell myself I'm not here to condemn anybody. If you have trouble with that uh, idea, or you know people that do, I wrote a whole book on that, Evolution and the Christian Faith. Um, theistic Evolution in the Light of Scripture. And I show how doctrine by doctrine in the Christian faith it is actually undermined by the idea of evolution. So um, that I would to you, if, that's, uh, if that would help you. If you have many questions, all sorts of questions, like what about the dinosaurs? What about um, plate tectonics? What about the age of the earth? Six or days? What about... Um, the fossils? What about carbon dating? What about the Nephilim? Are the extraterrestrials those Genesis 3? What about the, um, the um, different so-called races of human beings? Why is, does God allow bad things? Why do some animals look like they're designed to do bad things? Killing and eating, and they've got, they're equipped with claws and teeth and all the rest of it. All sorts of questions, about 60 questions answered in about 20 chapters in the Creation Answers book, and uh, that, that's back there. Uh, that's it there. And then, uh, if you're not a big reader, um, a book here. I approached um, 10 PhD scientists a couple of years ago, and I asked them if they would be willing to write a little contribution for what was intended at the time to be an article. A book had been produced by New Scientist. Remember, I quoted New Scientist to, to put the cover up right at the beginning. They produced a book a few years ago called How Evolution Explains Everything About Life. Well, that's a pretty audacious title, you know. Wow, I read this book and I understand all of life. Ten PhD scientists, secular scientists, very eminent people, men and women, and they made so many incredible claims. I thought, let's put these to scientists in their fields uh, and ask them to answer them. So that's what I did here and uh, I topped and tailed it, presented the Gospel at the end, and that's a short 80-page illustrated book with um, contributions from 10 scientists writing in their own expert fields. So that's, um, uh, you can buy that for just 2 90 and get a whole stack of them if you wish. Um, yeah, PhD scientists do exist who believe the Bible. I've had people in the past tell me, you mean to say there are scientists working at universities who, don't, who believe Genesis, who don't believe evolution? I said, yes, lots of them. They're in minority, but I know there are certainly thousands of them across the world. And uh, here are just 30 in this book. Now, it looks like it's... I think the cover is not very great. It's a bit sort of primary colours, like it's for children. Inside, it's a very classy magazine-style book. Uh, So have a look at that yourself. That's on offer at the back. You might not get your information by reading. You might prefer to watch something. Uh, This recently produced documentary, very high quality... Dismantled a scientific deconstruction of the theory of evolution very very well-made documentary, um, and uh, I, I would commend that to you. There's all sorts of DVDs back there. I don't know how two of you purchased DVDs in the break. Not all of you have DVD players nowadays. I understand that. But if you do, um, and uh, you want a sort of whole, um, you want a whole teaching to take you through this kind of stuff right through Genesis chapters 1 to 11, that's a great set there. Um, I mentioned dinosaurs. Uh, I had fun producing this book on dinosaurs for children in the last couple of years, and a very talented... uh, I I just did the the, the text, and there's um, teachers' and parents' notes as well. It's for primary school children. There's a very uh, lot of of excellent artwork by Alison Brown. Um, So, all sorts of materials there. Do have a look at them. And um, I'll mention in a moment Creation magazine. Uh, But I think time to give you a chance to ask a few questions. Um, we don't want this to drag out for millions of years, but, you know, if anyone's burning to ask a question, I'm willing to have a go. And don't be, don't be afraid to disagree with me, by the way, that's fine. <laughs> yes? Um, one of the questions that keeps coming up for me is, uh, obviously, Noah's Ark, and uh, after Noah's Ark landed, we had two kinds or seven kinds of animals going back to where they lived. Um, in that time, they they all, obviously, they come from different um, climates. So how do they survive? Why do we find bones of those in different parts of the like <coughs> kangaroos? Why do we find okay. kangaroos? Next? So the, the question is, because um, I think there's one or two people listening on Zoom, um, we've got the account in the Bible of Noah's Ark, and we've got animals coming into the ark, but then they come out of the ark, and I think you said they go back to the places where they lived, yeah. and uh, you ask questions then about the fossils we find? Well, OK, why don't we find kangaroo bones in, in other uh, places? Uh, OK. Way, OK. The first, there's a few questions there, very quickly then. Uh, you can get more information in that red Creation Answers book that I mentioned here, okay. and some of the other resources. But the short answer to your question is, God did not make... The, the, where we see creatures living today, their, their habitats, um, even their whole ecosystems, are totally different from before the flood. The flood, you have to imagine, is not some, like a bath filling up and going down, leaving a bit of sediment. The continents that we have today wouldn't have been the same continents. And there are a number of reasons we say that. Number one, it says the fountains of the great deep broke open, and the windows of heaven were open. So we're, we're talking about something catastrophic. The type of uh, event we're talking about would have involved volcanic activity, and you might say, well, fountains are great deep. Yeah, most of what comes out of any volcano is water. Fountains of lava, like Mount Etna, that type of volcano, more than 90% of the material coming out is water in the form of steam. Even the explosive type of eruptions like Mount St Helens, um, probably 70% of the material that causes the big explosion of blowing its top is steam. So fountains of great deep, I'm convinced, is not just hydrothermal water coming up, but it's volcanic activity. We're talking about, therefore, a more destructive flood what a geologist would call a tectonic event. It's cataclysmic. In fact, the Bible uses unique words in the Hebrew, mabul, for this flood, not of, used of any other flood. In the, there are other floods mentioned in the Old Testament, but never there is the word mabul used for those types of floods. And in the Greek, in the New Testament, I think it's cataclysmos, like, like cataclysm we get from that Greek word. Again, unique words, indicating we're talking about something very different from ordinary floods. Why do I say that? The world's geography is totally different. The continents are different. And there's evidence that there have been plate movements and that continents that are now far... or land masses are now far apart Were once closer together. A lot of that evidence that scientists talk about, and they span it out over tens of millions of years, can be collapsed into the time frame of the flood. It's catastrophic plate tectonics, it's runway subduction, not slow and gradual, you know, fingernail speed growth a year. Um, you know, know, for the movements of the plates. So when you factor that in, you're looking at our geography today, the distribution of the continents, the landmass, is very different from before the flood. Therefore, all of the animals today are not going back to where they were before the flood, they're making a living where they've got to. And so they've migrated out into this virgin well, destroyed, presumably vegetation beginning to come forth. They're establishing new ecological niches. They have their local place to live, new habitats develop, new ecosystems, relationships between animals and plants develop. It's totally different from before the fourth flood. And probably some animals, some plants, didn't fare so well and that results in some, some of the extinction. Your question about the um, the kangaroo is really a question generally about marsupials, I would say. So animals mammals with pouches that um, nurture, you know, the, the young are born very, very tiny, they crawl round into the pouch, they are fed with milk in the pouch, and they develop that way. The joey of the kangaroo, the little, and, and, and all the other um, marsupial mammals. It's not actually the case that marsupials are, um, are only known from Australia. You do find, um, and certainly fossils of marsupials are known from other continents, including South America. So. How do the animals like the... Why does it seem that you get a concentration of marsupials in Australia? That's an interesting question, and because I've taken up quite a bit of time, I would suggest going and reading that in that book. If you don't have money with you, you can, lo- you can get the, the chapters for the Creation Answers book online uh, as well. But, yeah, these are good questions. Yes. Yeah. <coughs> OK. Well, shall I tell you what? Uh, I do have a talk on this. Let me just briefly dive into it and um, I'll just show you a picture. So not everybody's going to know what ice cores even are so let me just do that very quickly. Uh, <laughs> it's just easier to show you a picture. Um, the bottom line is ice cores are the result of drills down into an ice pipe um, like Greenland or the Antarctica. So. Um, Let me just find this for you. So, here we've got Greenland, for example. And those funny names, North Grip, Gisp 2, etc., are places where they've drilled down into the ice. And they believe in Greenland, the ice um, represents about 110,000 years of deposition. In um, Antarctica, the ice is deep and they think it represents a few million years of deposition. They think the ice in Antarctica is... um, The ice sheet's been there for 30 million years. Um, But the truth is, you cannot just make an ice core, like you see in this picture, by drilling, and then count the annual layers of ice all the way down to the bottom. It doesn't work like that for a start. As ice deposits on the surface of of a glacier, or, sorry, an ice sheet in this case, as it gets down deeper into the ice sheet, You've got to imagine this is an ice sheet. It gets compressed. It also gets stretched out, because the, glass, the ice sheet is flowing to the sides. So as you get deeper, not only are the layers compressed because of the great weight on top, but they're also being stretched out. It's only possible to count, and some, some would say not even this far, but at the very best, about 500 metres down. Certainly not, you know, um, the great depths of, to, the, to the bottom. And you can't um, count annual layers, so what they do is they use things called proxies, something that we use instead, and uh, they, might catch, they might count dust, a band of dust that they think might have been uh, the result of a volcanic event, and they use laser light and the way it scatters from that dust to detect that dust layer. They might uh, look at isotopes, different ver- variations on, on, uh, of oxygen, heavier oxygen or heavier hydrogen. They might use different other chemicals in the ice and they measure these things, and then they use those as a proxy, something instead of um, an, uh, to, of um, counting anti-layers. It's really complicated, very complicated, because and you can't work out temperature. You can't, you can't go back as you count down. You can't measure the temperature of the ice. It's all cold, isn't it? So what do you do? Well, it might amaze you to know that this is what actually takes place. Very often, precipitation on the ice sheets is too low to count, count annually. Anyway, you know this if you think about snowfall. Snowfall will only happen when it's um, a bit below freezing, but not too many degrees below freezing. It's too cold to snow. A lot of Antarctica, for example, is just simply too cold. It's a polar desert. There are places a few hundred miles from the South Pole where no snow falls because it's just too cold. But there are places where snow falls much more quickly and deeply, particularly on the edges. But you don't count these um, annual layers, you get oxygen and hydrogen isotope readings. You might not understand that, but different sorts of hydrogen and oxygen, let's put it like that. But not from the ice. In this case, you might get them from seafloor sediments. Okay? Literally drill down and get a sediment core. Okay? Which is believed to have formed during the time the ice was forming above the ocean on land. Okay? And then. Based on those sediment ages, uh, by the way, how do you get an age for those sediments? You calibrate the ages of those sediments based on Milankovitch theory of ice ages. He's got this idea that every, or he had this idea that the tilt and wobble and um, variations in the way the Earth moves around the sun over periods of thousands or tens of thousands of years can change the amount of sun reaching the Earth and could cause ice ages. Complicated. Okay, so that astronomical theory of ice ages it is just a theory, is used to calibrate the sediment cores from the oceans, which are then further modified according to the sediment flow models I just showed you, the way that's stretched out, etc., that's all taken into account, and eventually, with that information, you assign an age to the ice cores and determine from those ice cores then how cold or hot the Earth was at the time. It's circular reasoning, because all the way back at the beginning, you've already assumed the Earth is tens of thousands or millions of years old. So um, ice cores, it's not that as creationists we ignore the ice cores, we interpret them differently based on biblical assumptions. I can't do that now, I just don't have the time to do it with you. There is a chapter in the Red Book, keeps coming up, on ice ages. Another one also on the mammoths. but. Um, I'm not, I'm not, by the way, ridiculing the scientists when I say they use circular reasoning. Circular reasoning goes on a lot. If you start with a belief in evolution, you've already started with a belief in millions of years before you even look at the evidence. And then you find evidence that you think points back to millions of years while well, you've, argued, you've argued in a circle. You're proving what you've seen to be true from the start, which means your reasoning is explanation-free. You have to start with something. I mean, we, are, we argue in a circle too, if you think about it, a Christian who believes this is the word of God, believes it on the testimony of scripture, not on some independent. You know, we, we take God's own word as God's own testimony. It's not a case of which bias is the right, is, is, is um, best, it's a case of which bias is the best bias to be biased with, as Mr Ken Ham once said very eminently. Thank you. No, absolutely. And when I, teach, when, I teach that, when I teach that, I tell people it's complicated. It is impossible for a layperson to get their head around that. And I don't think that even many, uh, many scientists who are geologists understand high school dating. I've spoken to them. It's an incredibly complex thing It's very, very complex. But you can get some um, simple answers from that book that would help you. There was someone near the back who had a question, I think. Okay, probably put you off because I've gone on for millions of years. <laughs> Perhaps I can just, um, someone might have one final question, but let me just um, just do something at the end here. Um, first of all, can I say on behalf of Andrew myself and CMI, we really appreciate this church putting on this event. It's good to see you folks out. I hope that this has been in some way equipping for you. Um, that's our heart. We're not here to sort of, you know, show off or pretend that we, we know a lot, frankly. The more you get to know about God's world, the more you realise there's so much more to know than you do know, and we're just dabbling. We're just—it's like tiptoeing in the Atlantic Ocean, and to say that we that we've, we can swim across the ocean, we know everything about the ocean, when you've just dabbled in all the shallows, is ridiculous. And so um, we, we we admit that. But um, what we do know is that you're left with an impression after a message like this. Hopefully, it's made you think, hmm, there's more to this than I thought. This is important theologically, it's important biblically, and there's actually some science that's on the side of this. And if you want to find out more, I would encourage you to consider, more than anything, a subscription to our Creation magazine. It comes out four times a year. It's um, full colour, there's no paid advertising, there's a children's section in the middle, and uh, it's been going since 1970. It obviously looks different from what it did then. It is really a really superb tool a ministry tool, if you like, if, you're, if you want to share your faith, a witnessing weapon. Not you hit people over the head with it, but you share information from it with people. So this is the issue that's just coming out uh, in a couple of days. And um, we always have a few pages of focus. That's commentary, on bite-sized bits of commentary on some of the things that have been in the news um, from the world of science. We have articles on dinosaurs. This one is called um, Battling Behemoth. And... Uh, there's all sorts of interesting discoveries being made about dinosaurs these days, which um, uh, is actually surprising to the uh, experts and yet very supportive of the creation worldview. Um, this is the cover article, The Strange Tree, The Amazing Design of the Baobab Tree. Um, Big Bang, science or science fiction? No, some, there are Christians who believe the Big Bang, and, are not, uh, you know, um, and there are even people who, uh, who reject evolution who believe the Big Bang. But I think the Big Bang has big problems scientifically. But not only that, I don't believe that it f- is compatible with a straight reading of Scripture. The architects of the Big Bang predominantly were atheists who were trying to come up with an idea to explain how the universe got here without God. And that's very clear when you look at the testimony of men like Stephen Hawking. I could, I could spend a whole hour just reading quotes to you from learned men that I've gathered over the years who were top physicists and astrophysicists who showed they're atheistic assumptions. And so, Big Bang, we need to question it. Uh, bacteria, master compass builders. The, the, the incredible complexity of bacteria now is unbelievable. I won't go into it, but this is seven motors in one, discovered a few years ago. Seven motors in one. And if you turn motors next to each other, guess what you need? You need something in between that will stop them chafing. And that's exactly what they have. And Because it's seven motors in one, it can swim a lot faster than the one, the one that's just got one motor, because it's attached to an outboard propeller called a flagellum. So these are super-fast little slugs. What incredible um, micro-miniature engineering has gone into that? Isn't evolution wonderful? Amazing. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, here's something Andrew's written, uh, science fraud. Dr. Mike Sutton has shown that, actually, um, Darwin, I'm afraid, was a plagiarist. It's long been suspected. The extent of his plagiarism has not been understood. And this man, Mike Sutton, has made that quite clear. So that's a very brief review by Andrew. And you can ask him more. Uh, this one Severed Slug Slick Survival System. This is a really weird um, discovery about these slugs that, that automatically capi- decapitate themselves. <laughs> God's made some very strange creatures. And um, we have a children's section. Um, this one's on planets and dwarfs and com- asteroids and comets. The point of this is to equip you. It's evidence for the whole family, for young and old. It's, it's, a, it's a scientific magazine, it's a, it's a biblical magazine, so it, it's, a, it's for people who are prepared to think. But it will help some people, no end, to have this kind of information if they go through school or university. We've got many, many testimonies of people who say this equipped them to stand firm while they watch the faith of their other peers who would grown up in Christian homes disappear altogether. It's so important to make sure young people are equipped. So if you don't get a subscription for yourself, maybe consider a gift subscription for another person. And uh, the top quote here, someone loves giving their copy to the magazine away when they've read them. The bottom quote, someone who says, someone passed on to us a copy of the magazine, now we're subscribing. Another way to share Truth is just to slip someone a magazine, buy someone a magazine. So um, I say that I, I've said, spent a bit of time on that because it's such a wonderful tool. I was getting this a long, long time before I joined the ministry. Uh, I know that's true of Andrew as well. He, he knew about this magazine a long time before he was working for this ministry. And you can get it digitally as well just for £3 a year. So um, Andrew's going to do this quickly. Just drop a few clipboards around. It's got forms like that on. And um, if you could just pop those around. If you don't want to, that's fine. This might just save a bit of time. If you do want to, put your details down. You'll get a free back issue to take away with you. You can just um, pop those around, Andrew. And if you want to get it for two years, we'll give you a back issue and, a, and either that free DVD, in which case just tick the box form, which gospel, brilliant DVD, or an MP4 full file where Mark, Harwood, you see a picture there, talks about elephants in the room. Brilliant presentation. Um, that's equivalent of a DVD that you, you download online. But it, it's there to equip you. And folks, I just encourage you to make sure that you go away with something. Now, if you haven't got any money, that's fine. Just, uh, we take credit card. But lots of free material on our website. But can I just encourage you? We're not about making money. Um, most, the majority of our income comes from the unsolicited giving of God's people. Praise the Lord. But we do want to see people taking this information in some way and using it to encourage other people to think again. It's an absolute tragedy, you know, that there are people who go right through a Christian upbringing and they go through a Christian church, Bible-believing church, and within a few months of getting to college or university, they walk away from their faith forever. Surveys show this right across this country, in other Western countries. It's absolutely incredible. The majority turn their back on the faith. Why? Well, when people have looked into this, do you know there's one, there's one reason why? Because they went to churches, they grew up in families where no one answered their questions on science and faith. If you've got answers, you'll be rock solid. You'll stand firm. That's so critical. And I'm sure there might be one or two people here who could give testimony to that fact. So I do encourage you to make sure that um, some young person you know is equipped. Thanks so much, Justin. And I've taken quite a bit of your time on a Friday evening. But um, God bless you. And uh, do pray for us. Uh, we, we, We certainly appreciate the prayers of God's people for our ministry.